Morning Covenant College. I am honored to introduce Dr. David Washburn today. Dr. Washburn graduated from Covenant with his bachelor's degree in psychology and a minor in sociology. Uh, interestingly enough, in the same year I was born, just uh, want to throw that out there. Um, he earned his master's degree and PhD from Georgia State University with a specialization in cognitive and comparative psychology. And Georgia State liked him so much that they hired him. And he rose through the ranks of professorship there, teaching psychology and directing the Language Research Center at Georgia State for almost 20 years. Yeah. Uh, during that time, he supervised many successful graduate students, published many, many journal articles and book chapters, and edited a book entitled Primate Perspectives on Behavior and Cognition, and accomplished many other wonderful things that would take way too long to list. Uh, in 2019, he made a shift from teaching non-human primates to play video games to teaching human covenant student statistics. So you'll have to ask him which is the greater challenge. Yeah. Uh, and since then, he's continued to supervise student research projects, publish papers, chapters, encyclopedia articles, often bringing covenant students alongside him in his research. He and his amazing wife, Kathy, also a Covenant alum and here today, um, along with one of his adult children, Rachel, um, are avid fans of Covenant athletics and can frequently be seen cheering on the Scots in person or online. They will find a way. Uh, they are generous hosts and love having Covenant students over to their house. You, <laughs> you can always find him with a two liter of Coke Zero, a crazy tie, and an eagerness to care for the students he loves so dearly. So please join me in welcoming Dr. David Washburn. Thank you very much, good morning. Uh, monkeys versus Covenant students, one of them smell better. I'm not gonna comment on which one. Uh, this feels wrong. Um, <laughs> All is right with the world, thank you very much. Um, can you see my tie? Uh, I've got a I've got a blow up of it. So this is Wesley. This is my five-year-old grandson, and he gave me this for Christmas. Uh, and when I told him I was going to wear this for the first time today, he was really happy, and he said, "Grampy, this way I can be with you during your talk." So thank you. So that's sweet. Yeah. Yay, Wesley. I do want to thank Wesley. I also want to thank Professor Green for inviting me uh, to give this talk, for organizing this series. It's been really edifying. It's been really challenging. I've enjoyed listening to my colleagues talk about their testimonies. And I can't help but wonder, or couldn't help but wonder, you know, whether I would ever get the opportunity to do this. What would I say if I had the chance to do it? Well, it turns out the first draft of today's presentation took an hour and 20 minutes to read through. And that's not counting the song and dance number that I was considering. <laughs> so, um, so I'm going to stick to my script or else none of us makes it to statistics at 1145. Um, so ironically, I want to tell you why I'm still a Christian and, and to set that up to do so, 
I want you to go back to me, uh, back with me to a time, the one time in my life where I seriously pondered walking away from the faith. The one time in my life when I said out loud, if that's Christianity, I want no part of it. So this is an event that happened when I was about your age, and it's an event that happened right here at Covenant College. Would you pray with me, please? Father, in the words of the psalmist, I will give you thanks with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wondrous deeds. I'll be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. You, O Lord, are a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Thank you, God, that you are a God who's not threatened by our doubt. You are a God whose existence is not predicated on our belief, but rather our existence depends on your grace and your mercy. As I talk about myself and, and things that have happened in my life, Lord, I pray that you alone would be magnified. And I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So my favorite movie is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yep. You either love the movie or you're content being wrong. Um, but, but unless you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark when I did, before 1984, you can't possibly enjoy the movie as much as I did because there have been sequels. So, so there's no point in watching Raiders of the Lost Ark where you would wonder, oh, is Indiana Jones going to survive? Because you've seen four more film adventures in Indiana Jones' life including last year's Dial of Destiny, or as I like to call it, Indiana Jones and the Apology for the Crystal Skull. <laughs> Why do I tell you this? Because, because I recognize that I'm a sequel. So, so I'm going to try to make you experience with me the, the most profoundly troublesome period of doubt in my life. Unless you've taken Christian mind with me, it's a story that you haven't heard but all of you know how it turns out, because I'm here. You know, I'm, I'm still at Covenant College. I'm still exploring how it is that God reveals his goodness that we sang about in psychology. His faithfulness is revealed in statistics and in the other courses that I get the privilege to teach. So, I've got a slide. Oop, there we go. I get a, there, one more, there we go. So, so I'm going to conclude with you know, some points about why I'm still a Christian, about why it is that I believe that God chose me before the foundations of the world, that my salvation is, is held secure because of things he did, not things that I did. Also, that I recognize the absolute impossibility of handling my sin debt on my own, and so I accepted his sacrificial gift and, and prayed for forgiveness for my sins. I'm a Christian because my life makes sense through the filter of God's word, and my experience bears evidence to his handiwork. But having said that, I want you to forget it for a little bit. I want you, I want you to set aside the fact that you know how the story turns out and jump into the TARDIS or... Doc Brown's DeLorean or Bill and Ted's phone booth or whatever your favorite time travel vehicle is and go back with me 
about four decades to a time when even I didn't know that I would say I'm still a Christian. In fact, spend the time turner a couple more times because I want to take you back to the point in which I actually became a Christian, the time in which I accepted Christ. So like many of you, I was raised in a a church background. But as a nine-year-old, I recall having a, a sleepless night where I was struggling with fear about dying. And my mom, being a recent convert herself, didn't know exactly what to say. But she had this little chick track called This Was Your Life, and she gave it to me to read. It's, it's this sweet little tale of a man who suddenly died and faced judgment and was thrust into eternal torment in hell. So you know exactly what you would want to read as a bedtime story as a nine-year-old who's already crying. But the tract also had a really clear gospel message. And that night, I prayed for forgiveness of my sins, and I accepted Christ as my Savior. I went to sleep that night knowing that if I died, I would spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Okay. Move forward about a decade. I came to understand that, that salvation was more than a fire escape from death and hell. But that moment remains significant. If you had asked me at any point in my life when I became a Christian or how I knew I was going to heaven when I died, I would point back to that evening, to that decision, to that prayer. I graduated from a small Christian high school that was affiliated with the Baptist church that we attended. And I enrolled in a small Christian college atop Lookout Mountain, affiliated at the time with the Reformed Presbyterian Church. I could never have imagined that a year later, on the same campus, probably in this same building, I would find myself at the brink of rejecting Christianity. The context of my crisis was a class that I took as a sophomore, maybe you've heard of it, Christian Doctrine. The catalyst of my conflict with Professor Ray Clark. You can see that he's a villain just looking at him, right? (laughs) Always smiling, gentle, friendly, funny. Ray Clark still lives on the mountain, loves the Lord, loved the college, loved his students. But Professor Clark's uncompromising explication of the Reformed Calvinist tradition somehow always felt like a sneak attack on me and on any contrary doctrines from my fundamental Baptist background. (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) Of course, this was particularly true for the Calvinist doctrines of unconditional election, irresistible grace, and limited atonement, the uli part of the tulip. Um, I felt like I was the only person on campus who didn't speak that language, the only person on campus who didn't fully understand those doctrines, the only person on campus that thought that my salvation came in a slightly different way. The first time a classmate looked at me and said, David, you're an Arminian. I remember the disgust and disdain in his voice. It it was just as if he had said, David, you're a pagan. Or 
David, you're a Maribel Scott fan. It was <laughs> devastating. Although there were many more similarities and differences between my beliefs and those of the Reformed tradition, the differences seemed insurmountable. This wasn't just a disagreement on the, the timing and the manner of baptism or the former church government. It was, in my mind, a fundamental disagreement about who was Christian and who was not. Why some people went to heaven when they died, why others didn't, and how I could know which group I felt in. Moreover, it seemed like a battle right within the pages of my own Bible with more learned and more devout people than me lining up on both sides of the debate. Looking back, I recognized that this wasn't a crisis about predestination as much as it was a crisis about whether God himself was trustworthy. We all agreed that salvation is based in faith, not works, but could I have faith in a God whose saving grace was limited and extended arbitrarily? Could I trust a God who promised that whosoever believes in me would not perish, but then chose before the dawn of time who the whosoevers were and who couldn't believe? Professor Clark had an answer to all my theological objections, but what about my, my own conversion experience? The very real perception that I had that I felt convicted of my sins, that I recognized the impossibility of saving myself through works, and that I had decided to accept Christ's sacrificial gift for salvation. What confidence could I have in eternity in the presence of God if my prayer had been truly inconsequential with respect to my election? How could such a momentous moment in my life be meaningless or entirely orchestrated or illusory? So I went home and I talked with my friends and pastors who, all being Arminians, thought I was right. Uh, I felt like my identity in Christ was being attacked, attacked with my very own Bible, and so I lashed back at the God who seemed arbitrarily merciful at a college that seemed more likely to quote John Calvin than Jesus Christ, at a doctrine class that seemed founded on the Westminster Confession more than Scripture. Now, of course, none of these things are really true. And you'd be right to protest that the story as I'm telling it is just filled with false dichotomies and, and some inconsistencies, some misperceptions of Scripture. Uh, if you've already made your peace with the great mystery of election, then you might have, a tr have trouble realizing how serious this crisis of faith was for me. Uh, on the other hand, if you yourself wrestle with doubt, could be over this issue, could be over other issues, could be right now, could be any time. Let me beg you to come and talk with me or talk with one of the other faculty members here at Covenant so that we can pray with you and so that we can assure you that you are most certainly not alone. In The Empire Strikes Back, another movie from the early 80s, Obi-Wan Kenobi tells Luke Skywalker, what I told you was true from a certain point of view. You're going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our own point of view. End of quote. Ironically, Christian doctrine class was causing me to question our own point of view. The, the boundary between what a Christian holds as a mystery of the faith and what a skeptic calls a contradiction in the scripture can become a really thin one. The Bible teaches us that God's trustworthy and we believe the Bible to be true. But once you start to question the witness of scripture, whatever, what evidence is there that God is trustworthy. Now, of course, college is supposed to make you challenge your, 
intuitions and your long-held beliefs to think critically about what's true and what's not and to teach you how to make judgments about truth and falsehood. I came back to Covenant, mainly because I was already halfway through the semester. Um, but I came back to Covenant because I, as miserable as I was in Christian doctrine, I loved my major and I loved my work-study job, which was taking care of the rats that you taught when you were a gen psych student back then. I've told you all how, what, what a big difference rats made in my life. Um, you know that rats introduced me to my wife. You know that rats, with substantial help from my professors, changed the way I came to think about psychology and the kind of psychologist that I want to be. It may shock you, though, to hear that God used a rat to speak truth to me in my moment of darkness. My colleagues have given really great reasons for why it is that they're still a Christian. I haven't heard one of them yet say, I'm still a Christian because of a rat. Scripture has lots of examples of God using animals to speak to us, right? Here's mine. Uh, working with rats involved rewarding them with little bits of food and ways uh, for doing the things that, that you wanted them to do. My rat was named Joab, who was the nephew of David. Uh, and I trained Joab to sit in his little box still until the light came on, and he would run over to a little metal bar, and he would press the bar really fast and repeatedly until the light went off, and then he would stop. And he would do it every time. Joab was a champion bar presser. I could predict with confidence and precision what the rat would do as soon as the light came on. I knew the thing that Joab wanted more than anything else in life was that little bit of food. And Joab knew that the way to get the food was to press the bar the way I wanted him to and when I, I wanted him to. And so one day I'm working with Joab and I stopped to think about the situation from Joab's perspective. He's inside the box. He's waiting for light to go on. He chooses to run over and press the bar. He chooses to stop when the light goes off. He didn't have to. He could have done something else, but why would he? The thing that he wanted most in life could be obtained through that lever press. Joab's freedom to choose coexisted without conflict with my own certainty and determination about his behavior once the light came on. And without overstretching the analogy, I know that it's got some flaws, the important point is that that rat helped me to see that God's sovereignty and his will that can't be thwarted isn't incompatible with my experience of having choices, my experience of making decisions, my experience of having responsibility. God knows things that I don't know. God is God, and I am not. The insight effectively eliminated all of the paralyzing angst that I felt about conflicts within Scripture because I could see that some of them describe the situation from God's point of view, and some verses describe life from ours. In his book, Behind the Eye, that's there's behind the eye. In his book, Behind the Eye, famed vision neuroscientist and Christian apologist Donald Mackay described it this way. God is the author of all that is 
if the divine being is being conceived of as the author, as say a novelist is the author of all that's in the novel, the doctrine of divine sovereignty implies that there are no events, but no events in the created order other than according to the author's say-so. McKay further explained that the characters in the author's story, whether it's Miss Marple in a Agatha Christie novel or us and the, and the divine story that he's told about uh, creation, fall, evolution, and redemption. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. What did I say? The creator and the sustainer of all is written as agents, those experiences of life as unde under, undetermined, with real choices and real responsibility from our perspective. Students, God has written my story, and he's written your stories, but his sovereign authorship does nothing to impugn our experience of uncertainty or freedom or volition. And indeed, we readily embrace this authorship in our lives in so many other domains. For instance, I truly believe, not just romantic cliche, but I truly believe that before Adam and Eve walked the garden, God created Kathy for me. It, it, was, it was his will that we would meet, that we would fall in love, that we would marry. In the words of George McFly from Back to the Future, I am your density. I believe ours is a love story written by God, and yet as we stood before God in witnesses and exchanged our vows 40 years ago this summer, in a ceremony, thank you, so now you know how wonderful she is, um, in a ceremony that was officiated by Professor, professor and Reverend Ray Clark, the, the man who had challenged me to the brink of my faith is also the man who pronounced us husband and wife, let no one tear us under. As we exchanged our vows, I'm convinced that we were really making those vows, that those were decisions that we made and that we've chosen to honor every day since. I could tell you similar predestination accounts of why I'm a psychologist, how it is I came to covenant, how it is you came to covenant, and many other stories. God's sovereign authorship in these and other instances is not contradictory with the experience that we have of making choices, just as it is concordant for the inerrant word of God to have verses like John 3.16 and Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. We believe... I believe that both types of promise are true and compatible. As a man of science, I want to make it all work out. I want to figure out how it all fits. But God is God, and I am not. And there are lots of things in my faith and in my science that I have to accept on faith. I'm still a Christian today because it's more parsimonious and coherent and meaningful, and it requires less faith for me to believe in the sovereign and loving author who's described in the Bible than to make sense of life without God. Here I'm reminded of my favorite apostle, Thomas. Doubting Thomas. I like Thomas. I'm like Thomas. I don't know what Thomas's profession would have been had he not become a disciple and a missionary, but Thomas would have been a great psychologist because he was skeptical. He had doubts. His friends all come and say, we've seen Jesus. 
And Thomas says, I want to see the evidence. I'll believe it when I see those data. You know the story. It's told in the Gospel of John. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again with Thomas with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet believed. Like Thomas, I've struggled. Friends, I continue to struggle with trust. I wrestle with knowing when it is my job to try to make Christianity make sense, not just with regard to the doctrine, but in terms of the everyday decisions that we make as Christians. When am I supposed to make it all fit? And when am I supposed to trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not to my own understanding? Trust is firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. Doubt is distrust. As Jesus did with Thomas, he's had to be patient and understanding and sometimes very direct with me, showing me that he is reliable, he is truthful, he is able, he is strong, strong even in the weakness of my greatest doubt. Like Thomas, I've seen his hands. As David wrote in Psalm 139, I've seen his hands hold me and guide me and bless me and help me. I felt Jesus bring me to his side at times that I felt heartbroken or afraid or hopeless or lost. I'm still a Christian because God has repeatedly and consistently shown himself to be faithful and trustworthy in all his promises. I believe. I believe because I've seen. And so, like Thomas, I say today, my Lord and my God. Friends, if you're unsure whether you're a Christian, if you're wrestling with doubt, let me or someone else in this room show you how he can be your Lord and your, doubt and your God. Fellow Scots, you're, you're dismissed.